Hello, everyone. Uh, we're reading today from Galatians 1, um, 1 to 10, um, and you should see those words up on the screen behind me. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead and all the brothers and sisters with me. To the churches in Galatia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory for ever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Am I trying to please people? If I was still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Hello again. So, um, it's so good being back here with everyone. Um, five years, five years uh, since Trinity Grove started. Um, seems like it's just kind of gone by in a flash to me, I think. Um, <clears throat> everyone uh, goes through growing pains. Everyone goes through growing pains. As we're growing up, it's obviously uh, you know, a physical thing, but it's also in the different lessons that we begin learning in life as well, because um, we all go through different struggles. I wonder, as a young church, a five-year-old church, um, how you felt about different growing pains that you've experienced together, not just as individuals, but as a community. Uh, thinking through, what does it look like for us to, to live as a people of God, um, through the different things that we experience together and the hardships that we go through. Uh, I remember the first kind of public gathering that we had as a church, and we were meeting uh, over in the gym at Padere Primary School. Um, I know some of you here will still be able to remember this well, um, being sent by what was then called, as we said before, Trinity Northeast uh, to plant here in Golden Grove. Now, the lead-up was very exciting as we're sent out from Trinity Northeast to plant our church, and it's also a little bit stressful. You know, letterbox dropping, heaps and heaps of homes around us, sorting out details for the venue, making sure things like sound would work, that music would be able to happen, making sure that would be uh, as welcoming as possible uh, to people who walk through the doors for the very first time. And of course, you're praying that it wouldn't all be a total flop as well. There was a lot of excitement in the lead up uh, to that first service, our very first church service together. Months of planning for our launch, finally coming to an end. I remember that first time I was band leading and I was singing on that first Sunday and I remember feeling really nervous. So really, really wanted things to go well, right? And there was one thing in particular that was making me nervous and it was that I'd be one of the first people to speak and to welcome people to our new church after we'd sung some songs. And I really didn't want to mess up that welcome. You know, I wanted to get it just right. Welcome to Trinity Grove, I echoed in my head. That's not good enough. Welcome to Trinity Grove! You know, I'd say it really enthusiastically so that people felt, you know, really, really welcome. 
I don't know if some of you here might be able to remember what happened, but the Sunday rolled around, rehearsal went well with music, still echoing in my head, welcome to Trinity Grove. The countdown finished, we sang songs, everyone was then sitting down, and it was time to welcome everyone to Trinity Grove. I was ready. I got up, I, I opened up my mouth with a really big smile and a really enthusiastic voice, and I said, welcome to Trinity Northeast. Ah! And Mike Sams, who was the pastor, then is up the back, his face in his hands, he looks at me like I've just committed murder, you know, ruined everything. No, just kidding. Everyone laughed at the trainee who'd forgotten where he was in the room. That's what really happened. It was one of those small, you know, growing pains. We had as a young church, thinking through what does it look like to be a church and our identity and who we are. One of the smaller, more humorous ones, of course. But every church has different growing pains as they mature, as they get older. But it's not just the young ones. You know, things can go wrong in small ways, you know, like the leaflet having the wrong info, or if you're me, uh, constantly forgetting to input the correct song lyrics into slides and to messing up the order of service, uh, to bigger things. Like dealing with unwanted conflict within different communities and families in the church to disputes of theological differences that can turn really nasty. Well, Trinity Church Golden Grove, not Trinity Northeast, Trinity Church Golden Grove, still a young church. And I wonder, however long uh, you've been here, whether that's from day dot or just recently, uh, have you experienced? any of those growing pains as a church, as you've thought about and learnt about what it means to be a church, as you've sought to be a people who are united by Jesus, united by the gospel and doing life together side by side. I want to ask you a question. What do you think would be the worst thing that could happen to a young church? What could be the worst thing that could happen here, for us here, as a young church? Is the worst thing for uh, for for us to be, to be barred from entrance into a building or maybe to be moved from building to building to building again and then back again? Would the worst thing be to be alienated from the people around us because of our faith in Jesus? Would it be to face persecution or maybe conflict in some form does enter our church? Or, and, and I hope this never happens, could the worst thing be that, uh, that we have to revert back to international roast for some reason? The coffee machine breaks. I mean, what could be the worst thing that could happen to a young church plant? This morning, we're looking at a letter that someone called Paul wrote to the churches of Galatia. It's most likely a bunch of churches in southern Galatia. If you're thinking kind of Turkey, modern-day Turkey, that's where we're thinking. Uh, that Paul and some others had started that we can read about in Acts chapter 13, uh, 12 and 13. You know, in this letter, Paul is really amazed But it's not a good kind of amazement. See, Paul is amazed that the church that he helped to get up off the ground is turning away from what they'd been taught, turning away from the thing that united them in the first place. Paul is worried that they're turning away from the gospel and that in doing so, they're deserting God and deserting Jesus. And he has some pretty strong words for them. Now, while Paul in the first 10 verses is trying to pull the Galatians up, He's trying to say, hang on, what do you think you're doing? We also read words of great assurance and encouragement for those who trust in Jesus. But before we get there, again, I ask you that question for you to think about for yourselves. What is the worst thing that could happen to a young church? But then again, on, on, the, on the other hand, maybe you're here this morning and you're not actually part of church and you're kind of thinking, I mean, who cares? Maybe you're here, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian or you're here and you're just 
feeling really disenfranchised with the whole Christian and church thing at the moment and you're wondering what a letter written roughly 2,000 years ago could possibly have to offer you. It's a really great question to ask. But keep listening. Because I think Paul is pretty convinced that the answer to that question isn't just important for a young church to think through together, but it's something that everyone needs to hear. Actually, I'd go so far as to say that this is a matter of life and death. Paul wants the Galatians to understand this, and we need to understand this as well. Point one behind me should say, on a, well, no, it doesn't. Yes, it does. On a mission from God. Um, one of the movies I remember watching when I was a kid, you might remember it as well, was The Blues Brothers. Uh, there's two brothers, Elwood and Jake, these guys right here. Uh, they're trying to get their band back together in order to raise enough money to save their old orphanage from closing down. I don't know if you can remember the line that kind of recurs throughout the movie, but straight-faced, Elwood and Jake, they let others know that they're on a mission from God. I don't know what goes through uh, your head when you first read those first few verses of Galatians 1, but I hear Paul like, pretty clearly in the voice of Elwood and Jake saying that he's on a mission from God. But whereas these two guys, Elwood and Jake, got their mission through a nun at the orphanage that they grew up in, Paul calls himself an apostle, an apostle, someone who isn't sent from any person, but by Jesus himself, by God himself. If you'd like something to read during the week, a bit of homework, grab a Bible and open it up to Acts chapter 9. There you read of an incredible transformation story as Paul goes from being someone who sought to destroy Christians, the church and the Christian message, to someone who Jesus himself spoke of as becoming in Acts chapter 9 verse 15, his instrument to proclaim his name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. See, that's what Paul is claiming in verse 1 of this chapter today, that he is that instrument or that apostle sent not from a man but from Jesus himself to proclaim his name. It's not just some ridiculous claim like in the Blues Brothers. This is a man who has truly been sent out by Jesus on a mission to proclaim his name. Now, if you've read one of Paul's letters before, you know that the first few verses are actually a really common greeting from Paul. And part of this is just so that people uh, know which Paul is writing to them. You know, is it Paul from just down the road? Is it Paul the barber? Paul from, you know, dancing lessons? No, it's the Apostle Paul. It's the one who helped start their church as he proclaimed the name of Jesus. It's that Paul. But the other reason Paul introduces himself this way is that those reading his words understand that he isn't just someone writing to them out of the blue, but it's someone they should probably listen to. Someone who, as we've read, has been tasked by Jesus himself to proclaim his name to them. And what does Paul want them to hear right at the start of his greeting, right at the start of his letter? What he wants them to hear is what he's already proclaimed to them about Jesus. He writes in verse 3, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, grace and peace are both pretty Christian words, aren't they? grace and peace. So what is Paul trying to get across here? Again, if you've read any of Paul's letters, you'll know that he starts most of them exactly the same way, with this phrase, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But why? I mean, if you've ever received an email from me or a text message from me, you'll usually read the words along the lines of, you know, I hope you're having a great day. 
uh, something like that. And, and it is genuine. You know, I really do hope you're having a great day. And usually you know this because there's about a thousand exclamation points included in there. Uh, but as I was thinking about this, that kind of greeting, it kind of just sounds like a bit of a generic kind of greeting, doesn't it? Like, you know how you walk up to someone, you have a conversation with them, and you might start it just by going, oh, how's it going? And then launching straight into something that you really want to say. Is that what's happening with Paul here? Well, I don't think so. You see, the terms grace and peace, while just two words, are words that are bursting at the seams with good news. It's because in these two words, the good news, the gospel of salvation from sin that Paul has been called by Jesus to proclaim can be seen. He writes, Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. See, Paul points his readers to the most incredible act of love that has ever been witnessed or heard of. An act of love in which we see both the grace of God which is another way of saying his unmerited or undeserved favour and the peace that it brings on display together in Jesus, who gave himself for our sin by dying on the cross. Now there are two things, especially in these verses, that we should take note of. See, the first is that Paul helps us see who we are, and the second is that Paul helps us see who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Firstly, Paul helps us see who we are. And who are we? Well, verse 4 tells us pretty plainly that we're people in need of rescuing. Help us to do anything to save ourselves. What's Paul writing about here? What do we need to be rescued from? Paul's writing about the reality of sin and the reality of God's just judgment because of it. Meaning, because of our rejection of God as our creator, as our king, we are chained to the penalty for this. Say it again, because of our rejection of God as our creator, our king, we are chained to the penalty for this, being God's just judgment for the wrongs that we've committed against him. God standing as the judge, we as the defendants, and what is the verdict? Guilty. We are totally helpless, standing guilty before the God who created us, who created everything, deserving of his judgment for our rejection of him. We are people who are helpless and in need of rescuing. Helpless to do anything to save ourselves. But thank God for Jesus, because who is Jesus? Well, in that same verse, we read that he is our rescuer. That Jesus has rescued us by giving himself to death on a cross to face that guilty verdict for us. To pay that penalty of sin being God's just judgment for us by dying in our place. Jesus is our rescuer, so that those who trust in him and what he's done to rescue us are no longer those helpless people standing guilty and deserving of God's judgment, but are a rescued people, people who have peace with God. Now, why he did it? Well, it's not because of anything we've done, but it's because of that first word, isn't it? It's grace. Undeserved, unmerited favour poured out for us by a God who loves us so much that he would die for us to rescue us. Paul points to a rescue plan that shows the depths of God's love, a depth we could never reach the bottom of. 
And Paul wants the churches in Galatia to grasp the reality of this good news of rescue in Jesus. On verses 3 to 5, John Stott helpfully summarises this. He says, The nature of salvation is peace or reconciliation. Oh, it's back, sorry. The nature of salvation is peace or reconciliation. Peace with God, peace with men, peace within. The source of this salvation is grace, God's free favour irrespective of any human merit or works, his loving kindness to the undeserving. And this grace and peace flow from the Father and the Son together. See, Paul's greeting of grace and peace sets the gospel, the good news of rescue in Jesus at the forefront of this letter and shows Paul's desire that this grace and peace is something that his readers know of and understand. This is what Paul wants everyone to know. The good news of salvation in Jesus alone from the penalty of sin and peace with God. This is what Paul's mission was, was to share this good news. And from verse 6 onwards, we read about why we should never listen to any other gospel. Point two on the screen behind me. Paul wants the Galatians to know there's only one gospel and they should never turn away from it. Um, I don't know if you can think of a time when a parent or maybe a teacher asked you to do one thing, but you did completely the opposite. You know, for me, I used to go into primary schools to teach the drums and I had one special rule for my students. There was, a, there was one, one lesson and it was that once the lesson was over, you put down your drumsticks and you stop playing. That's it. That's it. No more drums, no more hitting. I write some homework in your diary, uh, we talk about your homework and then you're going to head back to class. Okay? This, is, this is the one rule. Well, one day I looked up to see that one of my students wasn't going to follow that rule. I was writing homework in his diary and I looked up and there he was, caught in the act, drumstick perched above this massive crash symbol about to bring it down. And he's kind of looking at me and I looked up and looked at him and he looked terrified. I, kind of, I said to him, I pointed to him, I said, put the drumstick down. And he kind of looked at me a bit scared. I said, it's not worth it. Put the drumstick down. But he hit it as hard as he could. He started going bang, bang, bang as hard as he could over and over and over again. And I was amazed that he'd done something that was so obviously against what I'd told him to do. And I think by the look on his face, he actually was pretty amazed that he'd done that as well. And we had a great chat about it afterwards. It was good. But Paul writes in verse 6, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Now, Paul went through Galatia proclaiming the good news of rescue in Jesus and the churches in Galatia were formed because people had accepted and responded to that good news by putting their trust in Jesus. But now it's like Paul turns around, he looks over at the drum kit and there are the churches of Galatia with that drumstick just held up high but of course it's so much worse than that because for them to be turning to a different gospel other than the one Paul preached to them, well, it means that they're not deserting Paul. And Paul doesn't really care about that at all. The one they're deserting is God, turning from the one who's rescued them from the penalty of sin by the death of Jesus on the cross. And Paul is saying this different perverted gospel that you're turning to, stop listening to it. There's only one gospel and you're turning away from it and by doing so you're turning from God. I mean, how could they turn from such good news? In verse 7, Paul gives us the answer. He writes, Evidently some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. See, a group of people who have, have gone throughout the churches in Galatia are causing people to doubt the gospel that Paul first shared with them. 
to doubt the good news of rescue in Jesus and in Jesus alone. Whoever this group is, they've started perverting the gospel. Now, so far in the passage today, at least, we don't really know what that perversion is, but later on in Galatians, if you read through it, you get some hints. See, what this likely looked like was a group of people with Jewish heritage who entered the church, claiming to have authority from a respected church leader, uh, trying to convince Christians that in order for them to truly be saved, to truly be rescued, that they had to become Jews as well. They had to follow the law. They had to do things like follow the right uh, cleanliness laws. And they had to be circumcised as well uh, to really become part of God's people. Essentially what they were saying is that they had to gain their salvation apart from what Jesus had done by dying on the cross for us. In other words, they're saying there's more that needs to happen other than Jesus' death on a cross to bring salvation. And Paul has some pretty strong words to say about them. And not just them, but anyone who seeks to add to or take away from the gospel in any way. He writes from verse 8, But if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. What's Paul saying here? Well, he's saying that the gospel is unchanging. He's saying that the gospel he and the other apostles proclaimed about Jesus is the one and only gospel. There is no other. There is no adding to it or taking away from it. And anyone who tries to change that, even if, Paul, even if Paul himself tries to change that, even if an angel appears from heaven and tries to change that, Paul says, let them be under God's curse. In other words, let them face the full condemnation and judgment of God. These are strong words. This is what's at stake when a false gospel is preached. Because where we stand with God is a matter of life and death on an eternal scale. And when it's a matter of life and death, of either accepting Jesus as the one who can rescue you from the penalty of sin or saying you don't need him, well, God wants us to have life. And anyone who would put that at risk by changing and perverting the gospel is in serious trouble. His words are a massive word of warning to watch out for the false gospel. Words of warning not to turn away from God. But while they are words of warning, they are also words that should bring comfort and assurance to any who have put their trust solely in Jesus. Why comfort? Because what Paul is saying here is that the gospel that we have received, the gospel that has called us to put our faith in Jesus as the one who rescues us, is unchanging. And if the gospel is unchanging, then our rescue is assured. There is no more that is needed. You know, roughly 2,000 years have gone by since this letter was written, since the gospel of Jesus was first proclaimed. And this good news that was true then continues to be true today, right now. The world has has changed heaps in 2,000 years. I mean, nations have risen and fallen, new cultures have been born and grown and shrunk. Same to do with different societies. And world powers have arisen and been destroyed as well. Things have changed. But one thing remains. The complete an unchanging gospel, the good news of rescue in Jesus. And what a thing to be able to cling to in the storm of a world that is constantly changing around us. The truth of salvation in Jesus because of what he accomplished on the cross for us. 
And if you're here this morning and you haven't yet put your trust in Jesus as the one who can rescue you, hear again those words from Paul in verse 3 about Jesus who gave himself for your sins to rescue you. There is no other way to enter into right relationship with God other than through our rescuer Jesus who died for our sin. Now, response to him is a life and death matter with eternal consequences. And when you stand in relationship to God, it's the most important question that you're ever going to ask. His words of Paul should be a great comfort to us because they point to the unchanging reality of the gospel, to Jesus as our rescuer. But of course, they should also raise in us that level of wariness that needs to be there. Now, Paul is writing back against a group of Jews who were trying to convince Christians that the gospel Paul proclaimed is unfinished. They're adding to it. They're saying that, uh, that they also need to become Jews themselves, that they need to do things like become you know, circumcised. Now, I'm pretty sure there's no one in this church going around telling people that they need to be circumcised. And if you are, you need to stop it because it's really weird. But it's that twisting and perverting of the gospel that the churches in Galatia actually really need to be wary of. And that twisting and perverting of the gospel that we need to be wary of as well. But there's this great call here to watch out for counterfeit gospels. For any other gospel that teaches that we need more than Jesus to pay the penalty for our sin and give us life. It's the third thing up on the screen this morning. Spotting the counterfeit gospel. But what does it look like uh, to pervert the gospel? How can we make sure that we don't accept a counterfeit gospel? Well, for the church in Galatia, this looked like something being added to the gospel and to our response to it, saying that Jesus' death wasn't enough to rescue us, so you must turn to Jesus, have faith in him, and do something else. But if you ever hear someone say, to be saved, you need to turn to Jesus, trust in him, and insert anything else here, to receive salvation, then know that that is a gross perversion of the gospel. Because what could possibly contribute to our rescue that means more than the death of Jesus? The answer is nothing. And if you're here this morning thinking that you need to contribute something other than what Jesus has accomplished on your behalf, hear Paul, that is not the good news of rescue in Jesus. Be wary of that counterfeit gospel that adds anything to what Jesus has already done for us. But it's not just the adding to the gospel that we need to be wary of. Remember, it's that perversion of the gospel in any way that Paul is writing against. And that can also happen by taking away from the gospel. And I think our culture today, this is, this is far more likely to be something that could happen. It could be something like this. Proclaiming a gospel that only talks about the acceptance of God while dismissing the reality of his judgment and our need for a rescuer. I say it again, proclaiming a gospel that only talks about the acceptance of God while dismissing the reality of his judgment and our need for a rescuer. See, no one likes hearing that they've done something wrong. It's not pleasant news to hear that you're in trouble for something. And our culture kind of hates the idea that someone else might be judging what they're doing. I mean, after all, shouldn't we be free to do what we want as long as we're not hurting someone else? I mean, what have I done against God that he would be angry with me about? The temptation, I think, can be to proclaim a gospel that says God is so loving and so accepting that it doesn't really matter what you believe about him as long as you try to do the right thing and are a loving person. On this particular view, uh, Tim Keller helpfully writes that while this sounds extremely open-minded and really accepting, 
It's actually really intolerant. It's intolerant of God's grace, God's undeserved favour that he's shown to us in his Son. This is because it firstly teaches that good works are enough to get to God. If this is the case, if good works are enough to get to God though, it means that Jesus' death on the cross was completely unnecessary. And he threw away his life for no reason, because all it takes is virtue. It also means that for anyone who has done something bad in their life, as judged by our society's standards, that they're left without hope, because there's no way for that deed to be punished by someone else other than them. The thing is, the Bible makes a pretty convincing case that that's all of us. But it's not by the standards of our culture that we're judged by. God is that judge of what's right and wrong. And everyone has done the wrong thing before God. And there's a penalty that needs to be paid. Who is left to do that if Jesus hasn't done that for us? Well, if we don't accept that Jesus has done it for us, that remains on our shoulders And no matter how well we've tried to live our lives, we will fall short. We're saved through Jesus and Jesus alone and what he can do, not what we can do. We need a rescuer. And praise God along with Paul in verse 5 that we have one in Jesus. Now I asked the question at the start, what's the worst thing that could happen here at Trinity Church, Golden Grove? And I think Paul has answered that question for us. The worst thing would be for the gospel to be perverted. The worst thing would be to turn from the gospel and by allowing this to happen, deserting the one who has called us to live in the grace of Christ. So hold fast to the truth of the one gospel. In it is the grace of Christ, the grace of God. In it is peace with God and complete assurance of salvation in Jesus. This is something that unites us as brothers and sisters, something we can never turn away from and always need to remind each other no matter what kind of growing pains we may be experiencing or going through as a church, never turning from the good news of rescue in Jesus. I'm going to thank God for that now, for the rescue that we have in Jesus. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you that you're not a distant God, but you're a relational God, that you didn't turn away from us when we rejected you, but you sent your Son to die on the cross for our sins so that we might have forgiveness so that we might be reconciled with you and have peace with you. Thank you for the good news of rescue in Jesus. I pray that this is something we would never uh, let be distorted in our midst, that we would not add to or take away anything from this good news of life in your Son's name. I pray that this is something we will always rejoice in and always come back to, despite the changes in the world around us, that we will always cling to this one amazing truth, your love for us shown to us in your Son, Jesus, our Rescuer. Amen.